listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so very much for joining us. I just got this on the text just moments ago from my 13-year-old daughter. This text comes in. Dad, can a mayor get fired? It's for school purposes. This She's in grade 8. And I just think to myself, and, and you know, I automatically, because I'm such a wicked political dork, I'm like, well, well, let me just take you back to the Rob Ford mayoralty when uh, he was stripped of most of his powers, but the City of Toronto Act does not actually provide for... I don't think that's what she means. I said, so my response was, it's complicated, but every four years, voters get to decide whether or not the mayor gets fired or gets to keep his or her job. I hope, I hope that's right. I hope she gets a good mark. We're starting the program with a little transportation news, and namely some news now about smart cars. You know what these things are, these little tiny, you know, Tonka toys, these little, like, like matchbox cars. And in fact, this news comes on the heels of a kicker last night on our newscast. I don't know if you know what the kicker is. The kicker, that's what we call the thing at the very end of the newscast. Essentially, it's the water skiing squirrel segment. That's where you, that's what you put in there. And last night, our kicker was a story about a European dude who'd set some kind of world record for pushing a car, namely a smart car, some incredible distance. And I'm just thinking to myself, if you're a car manufacturer, you're thinking, yeah, maybe the visual of somebody pushing our cars is not what we want. But we have news that in North America... Maybe not in Europe, but in North America. Thank you. No thank you for these cars. Sean O'Shea is the consumer reporter for Global News. And Sean, what has the, have the makers of the smart cars decided to do in North America? Thanks for having me on, Alan. Well, they've decided, as you've said, not to sell it anymore in North America at the end of the 2019 season. Two years ago, you could no longer buy a gasoline version of this. So for the last couple of years, if you wanted one of these smart Fortus, it had to be all electric. But they only sold, they said, 90 of these units in the United States last year. Not exactly great production. And they've decided that it's just not financially worthwhile. So if you don't have one by this year, you won't be able to buy one next year. Sean, you and I are of a uh, certain vintage, as I like to say, and perhaps is the problem that when they said smart cars, we were all hoping for this. I am the voice of Night Industry 2000's microprocessor, K-I-T-T for easy reference, a kit if you prefer. Little Night Rider there for you. I recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I mean, to be serious about it, this car just, I mean, it was touted as being a a... A, a, a thing that would really take off in urban cores. I mean, obviously, you know, if you live in the oil patch, you're not going to buy one of these. I remember in 2005 when it came to Canada, going to the Toronto Auto Show and doing a story about this launch and talking to the president of Mercedes-Benz Canada at the time. And you could get in a driver and a passenger, and he said, it's great, you can get a, a full set of golf clubs in the back. And that's <laughs> true, but that's all you could get in. So if you're driving outside the city, you're not going to do it. It was designed, and I, I saw them in Europe last year. They're still pretty plentiful. If you live in a, a densely populated urban community where there's no parking to speak of on the street and parallel parking's at a premium, great. You're not going that far. But the way that people drive here, I think the reality is, as you said, it's not the purpose that most people would, would use it for. It just isn't big enough. But it does have its supporters, those who like them, love them. And I, I, I think that, you know, it's a common experience if you travel elsewhere in the world, especially in Europe or in um, South Asia, where the population density is considerably higher. 
you see all of these small cars and you think, well, we don't have any of those. They don't even sell any of those to us in North America. Sean, you've covered this sector for so long. Where is the trend here? Is there ever, are we ever going to get to a point where those kinds of cars, if not the smart car, but those kinds of cars are more plentiful here? I think that what we're seeing from manufacturers is that they're going to be gearing toward electric cars. Not entirely. For example, I was down in Cambridge yesterday with the Prime Minister and uh, and uh, Christine Elliott, uh, who you're going to have on a little bit later on, I think, and, and they were announcing this expansion at the plant where they produce Lexus. Toyota and Lexus have made a decision that they're going to stick with with cars that have an internal combustion engine and hybrids for the most part. But they want to sell vehicles that are popular. So to your point, people want cars that they like. People want cars that they think have utility for them. And a vehicle like a smart car just doesn't cut it for them. I mean, the range on this vehicle was only about 100 kilometers. If you're in the city and you've got a gas station every few blocks, all right. But it's it's not terribly practical. So automakers want to build what people will buy because they want to stay in business. Sean O'Shea is the consumer reporter for Global News, and I'm just going to play him out here with a little Night Rider. Just play him out. Little. I miss this show. This was back when TV was good. Am I right or am I right? This is this is before Game of Thrones when everybody had to have their head chopped off. Totally agree. <laughs> Sean O'Shea, always great to have you on. You Thanks, can Alan. see Sean's story on the demise of the smart car, at least in North America. That's tonight at 5.30 on Global News. Thank you, Kit. Thank you, Knight Rider. Did we just lose Jamie Marocker? We're trying to get to Jamie Marocker now, who's on the line, and she's with this uh, protest that is making its way towards Queen's Park to protest all sorts of uh, injustices in the healthcare sector. And interesting to hear in our news program, one of those nurses uh, that you heard clipped in Tina's newscast talking about the uh, funding changes going to quote unquote effective or effect patient care. And I think a lot of people are concerned about what is happening in the province because there seems to be such a disconnect between what the province is saying and then what we're hearing in these protests. And I talked a great deal yesterday about whether or not you feel like an idiot when you're being spoken to from the provincial government, but there is a considerable distance between the rhetoric that you are hearing in these news conferences and these protests and these marches and what we are hearing from the Ministry of Health, what we are hearing from Christine Elliott. And you heard correctly from Sean that uh, Ms. Elliott, the minister, will join us in a few minutes on this program. She's just finishing up uh, scrums right now, which is what happens uh, at the end of question period, and Jamie Marocker is now with us on the line. Jamie, are you are you on foot? Are you walking? Where are you now? I am on foot on our way to Queens Park. I don't know if you can hear how noisy it is, but there are thousands of people who have joined this protest. Every time we pass a hospital, another massive group, whether it be nine one one operators, nurses, paramedics, they join in. Uh, they have a samba band here. They have their flags out. There's a massive paper mache puppet of Doug Ford. Uh, is it flattering? Thing. Is it a flattering caricature of the Premier? It, it's a very pink caricature. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> very okay. red, red face. All right. Uh, what? So we have, this is a kind of a coalition. Everybody upset about something. I mean, everybody's upset yeah. about something. And there's, I mean, what's behind all of this? Just we're, we're angry and we're upset? We're upset over cuts to health care, but there's um, each different department is upset about something different. And I would say the biggest is the threat 
of privatization to healthcare that kept coming up uh, no matter whom I spoke to. Uh, the nurses are worried that, you know, Doug Ford ran on a promise to end hallway medicine, and this is only going to add to it. Paramedics are worried that the, the bottom line is going to come down to servicing big business and not so much I, worried about the patient. Uh, I, well, I, and I, I take that, the Jamie, you are reporting here, and this is what they are saying, but I would counter there with there has been considerable uh, pushback from the provincial government and constant reassurance that there will be no private yes. for-profit sector allowed in health care. There's also been constant reassurance that there will be no on-the-ground cuts, that it will be middle management job losses. Um, that's kind of the thing to worry about. But it seems the fear here is that the premier won't be keeping that promise. I think that's what's driving this protest. Um, and, and as soon as they hear any change, I think they automatically think uh, cuts and how it's going to affect patient services. That is Jamie Marocker, who is samba-ing. Do you samba? What do you? What, are you limboing down the street? What are you That's doing? It. I'm limboing. You're down limboing. The uh, if you've ever had the pleasure of meeting Ms. Marocker or seeing her on television, she stands about six five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not wrong. Are you over six foot? You're over six. No, bring your heels on. All right. That would make me a. That would make me a pretty. Amazon. Pretty yeah. Yeah. All right, Jamie Marocker, who is a tall drink of water, but not six foot tall. I thought she was taller. Uh, we are back in a moment with the Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, will join us here on the Alan Carter Radio Program, Global News Radio, six forty Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us, and we have a big guest just right ahead. The Minister of Health is standing by, but I just want to set the table here with what we are talking about. And we're, There's a major dispute underway between the City of Toronto and the Province of Ontario, all about uh, public health funding. Now, you may have heard some of this in the past, and now both sides are sort of jockeying for position and trying to get their message out. I want to play for you. Christine Elliott, Ontario's Minister of Health, speaking today in question period about the differences with the City of Toronto. There is a difference of opinion which we are trying to work through with the City of Toronto so that they will understand how we arrived at their calculations. We're trying to understand their calculations. I'm sure that we can resolve that. The Minister joins me on the phone right now. Minister Elliott, thank you so much for being with me. A pleasure, Alan. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Let's Good. get to this difference of opinion, because I think some might say it's a little bit more serious than that. Uh, you are saying you're going to change the funding model, the percentages, going from where it is now, 60% province, going down eventually to 50-50. How is that not going to impact public health services in the city of Toronto? Because it is, uh, it's a $33 million difference for the first year going up to $42 million in the third year, which is a, a much different number than the numbers that um, some of the people in the city of Toronto have put forward. Well, namely the mayor says a billion dollars eventually. That is not correct. 
and that is something that we are working with the City of Toronto to um, explain how that uh, how that difference of opinion came about. But we are confident that with that difference and with some of the work that we are doing um, as a province, that the City of Toronto will have money in its budget to uh, perform the fundamental requirements of public health. So, for example, uh, the uh, province just announced last week, actually, it's a $90 million annual program to help uh, low-income seniors receive dental care. Um, the amount of that $90 million is directly attributable to residents of Toronto is $15 million. The City of Toronto is presently trying to uh, perform those services. So that's $15 million that the province will actually upload and will take responsibility for that will give the City of Toronto that extra room to be able to meet its requirements but for fundamental public health services. Minister, this is where I think we... we have some difficulty because now you're talking about what it is that you believe is a core fundamental duty. You also said in the House today that you believe that the city can absorb this. And I want to play for you here what the mayor has to say about your programs. When you take tens of millions of dollars away without consultation, unilaterally and retroactively, and furthermore, punish the city of Toronto by imposing on us cutbacks more so than on any other city in the province, which I do not understand at all, then uh, you are going to have a, a total that adds up to more than they acknowledge. And it's just their math is done quite differently. That is Toronto Mayor John Tory. Christine Elliott, the Minister of Health, is on the phone. Minister, how do you respond? Well, first, I, I fundamentally disagree with the calculations that have been done by the City of Toronto. The, um, I've indicated the amount of the difference is $33 million in the first year going up to $42 million after three years. So it's not nearly as large an amount as the mayor and uh, Mr. Cressy and others um, uh, believe it is. So I look forward to the opportunity to, um, to meeting with the mayor to discuss that. But secondly, it's a question of priorities. You know, we got elected uh, as a provincial government to um, commit to uh, providing fundamental services to the people of Ontario and to make sure that their taxpayer dollars are being spent properly. With respect to the City of Toronto, I'm sure that people have the same views about it. And it is important to note that the city has had a surplus in their uh, public health um, portfolio over the last 10 years, totaling about $52 million. So that's $5 million a year. So there is money available there. But you and have not taken into account, Minister, that, and you know this perfectly well, that civic budgets are set in advance. And how you are, when you talk about this money, what you do not say is that you are expecting the City of Toronto to increase its spending. The City of Toronto is as cash-strapped as the province. No, I am suggesting that the City of Toronto needs to manage its money very carefully, as we are doing provincially. And so there have been two recent examples that indicate that that money is not being as spent as well as it could be. One is with respect to, and this is according to the City of Toronto's own auditor, that the City of Toronto has bought a fleet of vehicles worth over $10 million that requires 314000 dollars a year to maintain and that many of these vehicles are are barely being used and that some of the employees that 
should be using those vehicles are also being publicly reimbursed for their own private mileage claims. That is not a good use of public dollars, nor is the example of, again, according to the Auditor General for the City of Toronto, that a tree maintenance company was out there watering tree stumps. And that is, uh, and uh, the uh, the GPS coordinates indicate that they weren't even at the locations that they were to be attending. We're going to be talking about tree trimmers not doing their jobs later on in the program. But well, you are raising small numbers and and small. I understand that you are you're you're quoting from the auditor. Yeah. But let me play for you. I th- and I know you will strongly react to this. This is the statement from Joe Cressy, the city councillor for Toronto, that has caught so many people's attention and has made so many headlines. The programs Toronto Public Health runs are in every single corner of our city. They impact the lives of every single Torontonian in our city. And I say this without one ounce of exaggeration. Because of these cuts, Torontonians will die. Minister, at the end of the day, whether somebody's watering a tree stump or not, this money goes to programs that help save lives. That is the kind of rhetoric that does not help in this situation. I think we need to be reasonable. I think we need to sit down and think about what are the most important things. Because while Councillor Cressy wants to believe that there's enough money to do everything that uh, that is he wants to do um, under the name of public health, whether it is or it isn't, the reality of the situation is such that choices have to be made and priorities need to be kept. So if it's a question of what's more important, having an entire department devoted to advocacy, when in actual fact everybody is supportive of public health, is that more important than vaccinating children? I think we all know the answer to that. I'm in support of vaccinations, of the breakfast programs, of helping students with special needs, of restaurant inspections. All of those things are fundamental components of public health. And with the money that the City of Toronto is receiving through the province and with their own contribution, they will be able to find the savings to make sure that those essential programs are being provided. Minister, I'm going to ask you some questions about the protest that is uh, beginning to gather uh, on the front lawn of Queen's Park. But But first, I want to ask you about something that the city flagged to me, and that is, quote-unquote, waivers that your government says that there will be for some aspects of Ontario public health standards. What what are those? What what would be a waiver on a public health standard? Uh, A waiver would be an area where the uh, province can, again, upload some of the responsibilities that the local health departments have been providing. Things like um, provincial campaigns on issues like um, reducing smoking. Those are things that each unit does not need to provide. That is something that can be done at the provincial level, and we're certainly um, willing to take our um, share of it and our responsibility. So that should, again, give more space to the City of Toronto Public Health Department to deal with those other essential programs that we've just discussed. The The concern from the city is a waiver of public health standards sounds a great deal like standards will be lessened. Absolutely not. Let's Absolutely move, not. Let's move to the protest out front. Uh, we heard from Jamie Marocker, who is following that protest uh, as it makes its way to Queen's Park. We heard from a nurse 
in that protest at the beginning of the hour complaining that changes will result in a uh, reduction in patient care. It seems to be a rather large group complaining about everything, but I wonder if you had a chance to go out front, what would you say to them? I would say to the people that our focus is and always has been to um, strengthen our public health care system and to center it around the patient to make sure that people can receive timely access to services and to services that are are connected. We know right now that our healthcare system is under tremendous stress, and so the status quo is is not acceptable. We have right now over 30,000 people in Ontario who are waiting to get into a long-term care home or to go home with with home care services. We have over a thousand people a day that are being treated in hospital hallways and hospital storage rooms and so on. That is not acceptable either. So the changes that we are making with through the the uh, through the budget and through the People's Health Care Act Bill 74, which passed uh, a week or so ago, all of those are ways that we can strengthen our public health care system and make sure that our patient care becomes better stronger, more connected. Minister, there are going to be people who heard those words that you just mm-hmm. said and said all of that sounds like opening the door to some kind of private model in healthcare. Absolutely not. And I have no idea how people can even come to that conclusion. But you just said there have to be patient-centered, there have to be changes. All of those things, to me, sound like you're willing to at least entertain the idea of bringing in some private models. No. In fact, what Bill 74 speaks to is creating local Ontario health teams that are existing providers of healthcare services in those locations and that they will come together, they will demonstrate their readiness and ability to manage uh, allocations of money for their geographic area and to put to, pull together all of the healthcare providers in that area. So it's really about putting more um, control into the hands of the people who are providing healthcare, many of which the vast majority of which are already publicly funded. So there is no concern about that. We want to make sure that providers are given the ability to provide the kind of care that they were trained to provide and being connected with the patient, and that patients are going to receive the kind of care that they expect and deserve. So that is the whole purpose of the People's Health Care Act. That's what we're concentrating on, and we want to make sure that um, people receive better service, that, that we deal with some of these long wait lists and the lack of services right now. So we had, for example, a teletown hall to speak with providers about how they can become involved in becoming a local Ontario health team and providing that integrated care. We had a full subscription. We had over 2,500 people on the line. So providers are quite excited about and enthusiastic about these changes and can't wait to get started. All right, Minister, we will have to leave it there. Christine Elliott is Ontario's Minister of Health and joined me on the line live. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Alan. I must say just before we go to break that uh, in a 
in a situation, in an atmosphere of raised rhetoric on both sides of the House, I think without any partisan indication whatsoever, we can all say that Christine Elliott speaks eloquently and with reason. And I think we could use a little bit more of that on both sides of the House. This is the Alan Carter Radio Program. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to the program, and ah, oh, what a heartbreaker last night, that Raptors game. My goodness, wide open shot, Danny Green. Come on, buddy. Wow, it's a good one. Uh, unfortunately, not the uh, just just not the result we want, but another fine performance by Mr. Leonard. Thank you. Thank you, Kawhi, for staying in the city of Toronto. If you need a place to stay next year, I got my basement. My basement's <laughs> open. Thank you, Kawhi. Let's move to Airbnb. Do you love the Airbnbs? I love them when I travel. Not so crazy about them in my own home city. And the CBC has done some investigation into, wait a second, who owns all of these Airbnb rental spaces anywhere? Anyway, that seem to be taking over so many downtown condos. And to talk about it, Zach Dubinsky is a senior writer with the CBC. He joins me on the line. Hi, Zach. Hi, Alan. What would you find about who owns these things? Well, you know, maybe not surprisingly, we found that uh, a lot of the owners and operators uh, of, of the most number of Airbnbs in Canada are actually big companies. Um, but the, what we really found that's interesting uh, is that they don't always tell you that. They kind of like to disguise the fact that they're a big corporation. And uh, sometimes what they'll do is they'll, uh, they'll put up a profile that makes it look like it's an individual, someone very friendly and smiling. Um, a couple of these companies even use fake photos. They even use a, a pseudonym or an alias on their profile, and, uh, and sometimes they won't even tell you it's a company. So you, you might think you're just renting from an average Joe who's got an extra room or an extra house to spare, uh, but actually you might be dealing with a multinational that's pulling in millions of dollars a year on Airbnb. Any evidence that these multinationals have ties to hotel chains? I've often heard that hotel chains have just now moved their money into the Airbnbs. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we just saw, I think, in the last few days that the, the Marriott company, uh, for example, is actually starting up a competitor to Airbnb. So far, we haven't seen any of the big commercial hospitality companies in what we found. Um, but one of the biggest companies, in fact, it is just overtaken as the largest company doing listings on Airbnb in Canada, um, is almost as big as some of the hotel chains. Um, it's called Sonder. It's actually based out of San Francisco. It was originally founded in Montreal, but uh, they got so much venture capital, they've raised over $135 million in venture capital. So they actually moved to California, um, and they're running you know, something like 230 listings in Canada, and then uh, you know, thousands elsewhere around the world. Is there any evidence to, that there are a systemic, systemic breaking of bylaws? Obviously, there's a patchwork of bylaws in different municipalities that deal with Airbnb, but do we know that these corporations are actually skirting laws? Yeah, so a couple of the people we spoke to, because we, we tried to get in touch with as many of them as we could, um, a couple of them openly sort of admitted that they're not in conformity with their local bylaws. This was uh, two companies out of Montreal that have, uh, you know, almost 100 listings each. Um, and they, they said, you know, we're making best efforts. The law is still kind of new. Uh, we're trying to get in line with the law. Um, we have some evidence that uh, some of the other big companies are maybe just openly flouting the law um, because the um, authority in 
Quebec at least that's charged with enforcing it has not been giving out fines yet. If we look at just Toronto, if you go on the City of Toronto's website, uh, the City of Toronto says that basically any commercial short-term rental uh, in almost anywhere in the city is illegal because it would violate you know zoning ordinances. Um, but they're still waiting until uh, until this August because there's going to be a hearing uh, to decide if the City of Toronto's new bylaws around short-term rentals are going to be put into force or not. So that's all kind of up in the air at this point. Zach Dubinsky is a senior writer at the CBC. You can read this article at cbcnews.ca. Zach, thanks so much for being with us. Anytime. Thank you. Markham will chip this one in as the puck stays in and bounces. And now here it is, Nicole Costa. Overside, takes a shot and scores! Morris Stacy with the overtime winner for Markham. Let's talk about sports for a second. I was just talking about that big NBA game last night. Why is it that despite the fact that, you know, there's such a push for equality, women's sports teams can't seem to gain ground? We're seeing it time and time again that women's sports teams just simply cannot get the support, the fan base. And why is that? Chelsea Purcell is the general manager with the Markham Thunder from the Canadian Women's Hockey League. Hi, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So, the product you put on the ice, I know you guys are a great hockey team, but how come no bums in seats? Uh, I think one of the biggest issues that we had was just the marketing dollars that we couldn't put forward to really drive the game and make people aware of it. A lot of it was word of mouth and email blasts and maybe social boosts here and there, but a lot of it was just people knowing about the game and uh, I'd always be surprised if I went to a younger kids game and asked if they knew about the league and they didn't even know about it and they were a young ho- female hockey player. So when you know that there's two teams in the GTA that exist and even the associations don't know, it's just the word of mouth is not getting out there enough and there's not dollars being spent or dollars that we had to be spent to be able to market the teams. Well, is it like a chicken and egg thing? The people don't come, you don't yeah, have the dollars, exactly. you don't have the dollars to spend on marketing. Exactly, and then sponsors want more eyes on the on their logo, and if we can't get more people there, and we can't get more sponsors because people aren't getting there, but we don't have the dollars to market to get people there, it's exactly that was the problem we had for sure. All right, well, let me try and do my part. Uh, you're on the radio program here, we don't have a lot of time left, but where do people then put their support? So we have auctions going on today, it's ending at, summer ending at 7 p.m., 9 p.m., and 5 p.m., uh, you can go online to 32auctions.com, and there's one for Calgary Inferno, there's the CWHL, the Markham Thunder, the Toronto Furies, Wooster Blades, and Le Canadiens. You can all go to their Twitter accounts and find the link to that. And There's jerseys up, there's sticks, there's um, trophies, the league trophies that really are up, and we're hoping that people donate them back to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, but there's a lot of ways that you can support there. And What about the national people. team? I mean, I, I, obviously, I, I, this auction is so important, but uh, on the national level? Um, it's just going to games when they're doing it, like the rivalry thing comes around, uh, honestly, just watching TV, helping the ratings get up, so sports channels want to put more games on there, because if they get over 100K, or the more we can get people watching it, the more that they'll want to put it out there. I think just like buying apparel, buying jerseys, Anything you can do to support and um, show that it's it's equal and it's it's worth watching it helps it. Chelsea Purcell is the general manager of the Markham Thunder. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
sitting underneath a mango tree Dozing away in vain The wind that caressing the leaves Once again, there is trouble in the forest, there's trouble with the trees. Again, it's all trees lately. If it wasn't upset about, we weren't upset about the the province canceling the millions of trees that they were going to plant, who doesn't love a good tree? Which, that, ow, that stinks. Here, I have in my hand here a uh, letter. This is from... Uh, Stephen Holiday, or is it? No, it's from the mayor. My apologies. It's from the mayor to Stephen Holiday. Uh, dear Deputy Mayor Holiday, uh, writing about the review of money spent on urban forestry, I have been reading with dismay and anger by the Auditor General's report on urban forestry, and in particular, her findings and recommendations on tree maintenance services performed by outside private contractors. Well, what did the auditor find? Well, the auditor found that more than half of private crews billed Toronto for tree maintenance work when their GPS records indicated they weren't even there. In that investigation set to be presented to the city's audit committee shortly, the auditor reports that 62% of analyzed contractor work logs did not line up with GPS records of the crew's vehicles. Somehow... We believe we have now missed out on $2.6 million worth of tree maintenance because somebody is not doing what they said they were and nobody is checking. Let's go back to the letter from the mayor. There are valid questions to be asked and to answer. No kidding. Uh, The city has not before now conducted its own spot audits on the work done. Why? I will be conferring separately with the city manager about broader use of spot audits across city government. Oh, look out, folks. Spot audits. Nobody ever sees a spot audit coming. But my question to you here on the radio show, and here is the phone number to call in, 416-870-6400, star 640 on your cell. How do you feel about GPS on your work vehicle? Obviously, in this case, it looks like we're squandering public money. But what if you... I don't know, you work for some private contractor, you know, you're Joe, Joe, uh, landscaping. That's the worst name I've ever come up with. But so you do that. Would you accept having a GPS on your car? Before the break, I told you, I was tell you a story about when I was managing editor at Global News. So a couple of years back, this is around 2008, I was anchoring the morning show for Global News and then the uh, financial crisis hit. And the company that owned Global all of a sudden decided, well, we don't need that show anymore. So, uh, you know, I got that call saying, thanks for five years of getting up at four o'clock in the morning, but your show's over. Thank you. Uh, And I managed to convince them, I think largely because I knew where all the bodies were buried, that they should give me a management job instead of just showing me the door. So they kicked me upstairs is what they did. And they put me in the role of managing editor. And one of your jobs is managing editor. That's where you're responsible for the day-to-day operation of the newsroom. You're basically picking the stories. You're making sure the resources are where they're supposed to be. You're middle management. And if you've ever been in the middle management, you know exactly what it is. It's a bit of a turd sandwich. I mean, you get it. You get crap from above and crap from below pretty much all the time. But 
my job was then to say, okay, well, listen, we have all these camera resources, right? We got like 17 camera uh, crews that are driving around the city, and the camera operator, or the coordinator, the person that's sitting there listening to what's going on and monitoring what's happening all over the city, they don't always know where these people are. And wouldn't it be helpful if we could just have something like a, a screen that said, well, here's where all the dudes are and, you know, the dudettes, and, uh, well, now there's an explosion over here, and that guy's closest, we're going to call him, send him over. That seemed extremely that seemed like a smart thing to do. Well, the blowback, ladies and gentlemen, was considerable from those employees who said, I don't want you spying on what I'm doing. So what, now I can't go to the Best Buy at lunch? Well, yeah, you could still go to the Best Buy. We're not, I mean, there, there's nobody actually monitoring that much, but I, my question to you, 416-870-6400, star 640, is would you put up with that? Would you? Rebecca's on the line. I see her Her microphone is on. Rebecca is our... Uh, actually, I'm surrounded by hippies and lefties here. But would you put, like, a GPS on your car or maybe on your tandem bicycle? No. You would not allow that? I if, would never do that. If no. I, cause I, I would wouldn't even do that whole, like, you know that find my friends thing? People do that for their husbands and wives. I find that a little creepy. That's a bit creepy. But if I... Because like, I, sometimes I need to know where you are in the morning because I, I, I rely on you to <laughs> set up this program. So what if I was to put, like, a sort of a GPS so I knew when it was that, you know, you were dropping your kids off and, and then would you be upset about that? I, I would think that's what we call texting, right? Fair. Rob is with us as well, and Rob is also uh, a lefty and a bike rider and a vegan, which is why he is so supple. Mm-hmm. Um, would you would you, pre- would you, you actually do this? Would you allow a GPS to monitor where you are? If you had a, fl- you know, sort of a fleet vehicle or something like that. Well, you're saying I have a choice at work? Would you take a job where that was part of the, the deal? Yeah, I guess I would because you got a problem with that? it depends on the job. But if it was a good job, I would probably accept that because I'm at work. I'm not doing anything wrong. Like cops. Why, but, why, but, why, why, why don't the do, do cops, do, do we have GPS on every police officer's car? I mean, do the fleet management at, at the police at 911? they would, yeah. You think they should? So well, if they have it, why not? Yeah. Why not every single public sector vehicle that's doing anything on the public dime should have this? Totally. To, to be honest, we practically do, right? Because any of those apps that you use for driving around, they're all s- sourcing where you all right. are. Okay, so. So I'll stop with the big brother. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. Please. Could you take the... Somebody's calling. 12.53. Would you... Would you t- that was Rebecca, our producer, uh, who is just absolutely lovely, and she puts up with me in a way that I can't really describe adequately to you. Uh, Diva Management is really actually on her card. She's not actually a radio producer. It's Diva Management. She deals with egos. Ego, giant, oversized egos. That are getting bigger and bigger every day. Every single day. I hope you've enjoyed this radio show. We had all kinds of fun with uh, both the Minister of Health and also Sean O'Shea. And we have a call on the line. And somebody's listening to the radio show? That is unbelievable. Hey, oh my goodness, Chris. Chris, let's put you on. You're the listener. Hi, Chris. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I'm good. You got a GPS on your car? No, I don't, but um, my boss is actually looking into it, and I strongly recommend it. I'm not saying I, I screw around or anything, but it's very hard to keep track of where I am. Yeah, but do you, I, I understand that, but do you, do you have, so you obviously see it from your boss's perspective. Do you have any reservations on it? Sorry, say that again. Do you have any reservations? Are you worried about it? Do you not? Do you think I don't want this? Not worried about it, but I'm a trustworthy guy. So if you have a couple, uh, couple workers that aren't the most trustworthy of employees, 
uh, and they kind of tend to go to Best Buy and spend their time there, for example, than, uh, than the owner who's paying that guy hourly. How is he going to tell that? Um, Dude, are you paying? doing anything dangerous right now? No, no, I'm just driving with um, a, a Bluetooth headset. Oh, okay, because it, it sounded to me just, like you were maybe on a cell tower or something. No, 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 nothing crazy like that. Would be a better call if you were. <laughs> All right, thanks, Chris. I appreciate you being on. Right. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> Could somebody please call me who's doing something dangerous? Because it would add some drama to the program. Thank you so much. I'll be back again tomorrow. See you.